And he is back, the legend himself, yet again, Mr. Richard's excuse me, Mr. Richard Rhodes, sporting a snazzy vest that I like. Ah, um, It looks it looks wonderful, and we are going to talk about your book today, Energy. Which, aside from making of the atomic bomb, well, I guess and Dark Sun. So never mind. This I was going to say that's the first book of yours I listened to before I started the podcast, but I now realize it's a false statement because I had listened to several of your books. But I did listen to Energy like two years before I started the podcast, which for me is like a huge comp because I listen to an audiobook a week, and a wow. lot of it has to do with the podcast because I like to get on authors. It's a big compliment to say that I listened to one of your books years before I started the podcast. So I actually wanted to listen to it, but I remember listening to Energy in 2018 and i just finished it again yesterday but before i go on rambling mr rhodes please introduce yourself to everyone that maybe hasn't watched any of our prior episodes sure i'm richard rhodes i'm the author of uh 26 or so books best known is probably the making of the atomic bomb which won a pulitzer prize and some other awards and the book we're talking about today is a book i wrote about the long history of energy transitions and we're in the middle of the biggest one of all these days. To me, the thing that stands out, the, we always hear analogies about, uh, you know, futurists that try to allay the public's fears of AI by saying, you know, we didn't stop the production of cars because, you know, the horse, you know, the horse stable owners would go out of business. We always hear those, but those are kind of tired analogies. I think the one of yours in the book that perhaps stands out to me the most about how a paradigm when you're in it if it's 100 years in the past if if there are hundreds of years of the paradigm behind you and there are hundreds of years in the foreseeable future it understandably so in a lifespan of a 50 to 80 year old human is you can't really see outside of it and the one that sticks out to me is was the national security value of trees in in the uk and how in the right it was the the royal kingdom you had to have these trees because they were used for ships of the line which had to be replaced every 10 years and it was you can't touch these it was like a strategic oil reserve we, we couldn't That's grow them they were they were protected assets they called it the wooden wall yeah yeah, yeah. and when i look at that now you, you can't help but just kind of chuckle you just think of like you think of like you know like a like a nimitz class aircraft carrier and it's like there might be some like yeah, I don't know, luxurious like wood finishing, maybe in like the captain's like or quarters or something. But the whole thing is just you know, it's a monster made out of metal. Yeah. When I but look at that, old ships and yeah. they they worked very well with all those cannon on the decks. So, but when I look at that, I think it was it was a national security asset, and now we look at it as like, oh, don't cut down the trees; they're pretty, and. So I can only, I have to practice a sort of humility when I look at where we are now. And I'm like, we'll never get off petroleum. We'll never get off coal. There will be a time when we look back at this and it will be, it will be quaint. Um, could you maybe elaborate on that more about what the, what the coming shift is? Because the book, again, on Audible, I put it in the description. Actually, my favorite narrator, he also did Raven Rock by Garrett Graff. It is the transitioning of energies throughout the age, but I think we should maybe practice a little mental plasticity and see if we can look outside of our paradigm. What, where do you see this all going? 
Well, I don't even have to just guess on my own. There's a wonderful series of studies by an Italian physicist uh, who specialized in looking at long-term consequences of energy transitions. He's the one who identified a kind of natural cycle, it seems, uh, of around 80, around 50 to 100 years for a full transition from one major source of energy to another. And along the way, he predicted what would be the major energy sources in the second half of this century. Right now, the major energy sources are still kind of mixed up between petroleum and and uh, coal and, of course, nuclear and just the beginning of some of the uh, environmentally supposedly exceptional renewable sources. But because it takes so long to move from one major energy source to another, and we should talk about why that is, he predicted that by the second half of the 20th century, the two major energy sources would be natural gas and nuclear power. And I don't see that he's wrong at this point. We, we hear a lot about other sources, but those are the two that were started soon enough that they will have the chance to become dominant sources by 2050. So to go back a moment and talk about why it takes so long, the main reason is infrastructure. People, when they hear about a great new energy source, let's say solar, uh, think, well, that's great. We'll just build a lot of solar and there will be. But it turns out that it takes all sorts of things like the machines and factories and countries that will produce the solar panels, uh, improving the technology itself because brand new energy technologies, like every technology, are enormously inefficient when they first start out. The first steam engines were less than 1% efficient, which is which is why they were literally the size of houses. Yeah. <laughs> I went over to England when I was working on this book because once a year or twice a year, they start up the first uh, coal-fired steam engine that was built in England for generating uh, power. And it is literally in a big brick house. It is the big brick house. I went down in the basement where the old engineer was, and he let me shovel a shovel full of coal into the into the burner. But around us was all this machinery. And it was because this thing was so inefficient. And the same thing is true all along the way. Uh, if, if we can use nuclear weapons as a shorthand for, for nuclear power, the first... Uh, nuclear weapons were about 1% efficient too. So at the beginning, and so God knows was the first Tesla, which just barely was drivable according to Elon Musk. It was powered by some 28,000 laptop computer batteries. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's why 
he had on hand. So he stuffed them in and air conditioned them. And he said, that thing just barely moved around. <laughs> so we start out that way. And then, of course, to take an obvious example of uh, electric cars today, they need a place where you could charge them. And of, and, and of course, all over the country, people are discovering that although their electrics are wonderful for driving around the city, uh, if you want to drive more than 250 or 300 miles, you're going to have to stop and wait while the thing is recharged and on and on and on. The same was true with gasoline. When the gasoline was first developed, it wasn't even used for cars. Yeah. <laughs> it was used for lighting. Yeah. Well, it Used for lighting, it was it was thrown out as a waste product, and the kerosene from oil refining was used for lighting. But gasoline really didn't become available until there were gas pumps around, so you could fill your tank. So on and on and on. Then there's another major factor, and this is particularly true for nuclear power, and that is the uh, resistance of people to a new technology. That's been true since the beginning as well. When coal was first introduced in Elizabethan or rather Jacobean England uh, in the early 18th century, the preachers all thought it was literally the devil's yeah, excrement. The devil's excrement, yeah. The devil was perceived to live in the center of the earth. And when he shat, the material <laughs> was coated on the, on the exterior walls of hell. And then if you dug down, you found coal and you could burn it. I have, so, I have to interrupt real quick. Never when I started this podcast did I ever think I would interview guys that have walked on the moon or the inventor of the mRNA vaccine. Never did I ever think I was going to face-to-face -face have a conversation with the great Richard Rhodes and have him utter the sentence, when the devil shat. Take <laughs> that off my bucket list. Sorry, sorry, keep going. <laughs> so at each stage along, the other part of the infrastructure, of course, is that in order to use the energy, you need the machinery in your home or in your automobile or wherever it is that can, can uh, efficiently operate with that material. Gasoline wasn't used for lanterns because it was too volatile. If you put it in a, in a kerosene-type lantern, it would blow up. So they had to develop. Uh, and, and when natural gas was introduced in England in the eight, 1950s, after they had some terrible disasters with, with coal smoke mixed with English fog that killed in one day several thousand people, uh, they realized they had to switch to gas. They didn't yet have natural gas at hand, so they switched to coal gas. But they had to backfit all their furnaces and stoves to handle this different type of fuel. And then when natural gas was discovered uh, in the North Sea, they had to once again retrofit all of the, the household appliances and so forth because natural gas had different burning characteristics from coal gas. So these are simply random examples of why it takes between 50 and 100 years to make a full transition from one major energy source to another. And because the renewables have only just begun to reach a level of 1% or 2% of world energy totals, they're just not going to be ready yet. 
They're not going to have made the transition yet. Natural gas is well on its way. Nuclear power is well on its way. And except perhaps in the United States, again, because of, of social factors, if you will, resistance on the part of the population, it's pretty clear that nuclear power is going to be a major and really one of the dominant energy sources by 2050, because the rest of the world is building nuclear power plants. Nuclear power, the more you look into it, the more you kind of feel like you're going crazy, right? I mean, you you learn about it and you're like, you, you keep waiting for like the but it, you know where's the catch you keep waiting for where's the catch and sure the opponent could argue probably rightfully so chernobyl three mile island fukushima but i mean we also i mean how many plane crashes have there been and i i still get on a plane they're terrible i mean and not not it's not just like old biplanes in like a black and white era i mean the boeing 737 max is just what two three years ago they still happen i mean there was a wasn't there a chinese airliner like a week ago that crashed they still happen but you cannot look away from just how advanced, how accessible air travel is and how much it changed the world, our economy, our social, everything. So with, with, with nuclear, you look at it and it's like, yeah, you, you, there have to be and there are new generations, right? They don't, they don't go haywire when they shut down. Rather, they, they shut down when they shut down. But the amount of material needed, the byproduct of being water vapor, the ability to store it under two kilometers of, of granite or rock and us being able to really take on the whole world. If we wanted to in the U S alone, we could bury the whole world. And we don't even have the most advanced. I think you said it was Norway. They're working on it or Iceland. They're working on a more advanced storage system and the amount of power it puts out and the reliability they're taken offline for, for maintenance, not because they couldn't handle the load. No, exactly. There's something called the capacity factor, which is how much time a given system is up and operating full power. Yeah. Capacity factor for, let's say, solar is around 25%, meaning 75% it's not producing. Uh, wind is very similar. Nuclear is now well above 90%. Plants are operated with great efficiency, and they're basically only shut down to to change out the fuel every couple of years. So yes, and and but you know the thing that scares people about nuclear, of course, is the radiation. Yeah. If you say, well, other kinds of power systems blow up occasionally too, people will acknowledge that that's true, but they will say, yeah, but it doesn't release radiation. And there, I think, is where the real problem is with nuclear because. The theories about what kind of radiation levels are safe have been corrupted over the years by a general, well, in the early years when these issues were being first debated, the 1950s, there was a very strong bias on the part of the scientists involved to eliminate atmospheric nuclear weapons testing. And that led them to, to push toward an idea that any amount of radiation that's released is dangerous and will eventually cause cancers. There is plentiful evidence that that's not in fact the case, that there is indeed a threshold below which, because we're bathed in radiation all the time anyway, yeah. Yeah. we 
radiation levels around the world differ enormously. The, the black sand beaches of Brazil produce levels of radiation because there's thorium in the sand, one of the radioactive elements that can be used to make nuclear power, produce levels of radiation that would terrify some of our Americans who are afraid of low-level radiation. And people don't have a problem. So this is part of the question of the cultural resistance to the development of a new energy source that has almost strangled nuclear power in the United States. We have, I think, 19 reactors going in this country now. Or no, sorry, 99. And, and maybe we're going to start building some more, but the resistance is still intense. China, on the other hand, which needs a lot more energy than it's got and has been producing energy by burning coal, has decided to go nuclear in a major way. They're planning to build 100 new reactors, and such is the scale of their population that 100 new reactors, which would cover our entire energy supply, will only be about 5% of theirs. <laughs> I find those numbers just extraordinary. At first, China was going to build nuclear power the way the Soviet Union did in the old days, primarily so they could sell their fossil fuels to other countries. But China has recently pledged not to do that. So they really are signing on for reducing global warming while improving their... And this is the other factor about nuclear that I think people forget. Nuclear produces clean air. It doesn't put up all the particulates and oxides that coal burning and oil burning and even natural gas burning produce. And therefore, could save up to 30,000 lives a year in the United States alone by reducing the amount of lung disease from air pollution. Yeah. I tend to think of nuclear power and in terms of current public health value rather than future global warming value it actually has both yeah it's the <clears throat> the and and you talk about this in dark sun and uh the the beardlock pro uh, project you know campbell the hydrogen the hydrogen bomb manhattan project it goes back to truman right when enrico fermi and all the other guys came in there said it's an evil thing and they said this is how bad it's going to be it's a thousand times stronger and truman kind of seeing through the bs goes can the soviets do it and they said within a couple of years and they said well we, well we have to and i think the meeting lasted seven minutes that's another thing that's not just with weaponry it's right. with any advancements are there right. dangers absolutely if china's yeah. doing it well you have to a government resistance and the classic example today is of course germany yeah. Germany had a number of nuclear power plants, and for reasons that I haven't bothered to dig deeply into, but it had to do with their Green Party taking power in the German Bundestag, uh, or getting more 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 votes in the Bundestag. They decided to to eliminate nuclear power. They are doing so at the price now of burning brown coal, which is just about the dirtiest fuel there is. I mean, it's even worse than ordinary uh, uh, anthracite or, or bituminous coal. So 
they're suddenly finding that the cost of their fuel is more than double for the consumer what it was before. And their air pollution values have gone into the basement again, not to mention the production of, of the, the, the uh, CO2 that's, that's involved in global warming. It's just exactly the opposite of where they should be going. And of course, they're also buying electricity from the French, which is, which is really absurd because the French make 80%, almost 80% of their electricity with clean, efficient nuclear power and have never had a nuclear power plant blow up, do a beautiful job with what they're doing. And Italy's the same way. Italy decided to become virtuous and eliminate its nuclear power. And now they buy their electricity from the French. Uh, the, the hypocrisy is extraordinary. It's, it's kind of, it's kind of hilarious. It's, it's almost hilarious. It's in, in the same way, it, not quite, but in the same, it's, it's right. My older brother has a Tesla and, you know, you plug it in and it's like, it's electricity. And it's like, but you know, the electricity is coming from a coal fired part, coal fired power plant. It's funny, Germany, we don't do nuclear. We don't do nuclear. We do buy our electricity from the French. Where's that come from? Don't look into that. It's the right. It's it's cleaning your room. It's I remember when I was a kid, and my mom would say clean the room. What I would do is I would take every all the toys, and I would just I would push them in like a neat line, just on the walls. And so there'd just be like a snake of toys around the walls. I didn't throw them in a corner. It was just what. So it was evenly distributed. My mom would come in and be like, "This isn't clean. This is everything's just pushed to the wall." It was like you know, it's like scattering the vegetables around on your plate to make it look like you ate it. It's the same thing. We're just not doing it and. Nuclear really is, yes, there are, I mean, look at, you know, Pripyat, like, it, yeah, uninhabitable. That's also an earlier generation of reactors that even at the time were illegal in the U.S. And it's also just kind of the folly of the Soviet system. But when you look at this, you have to, you have to understand that there's no perfect answer. And you have to go, are there side effects from this? Sure. If we believe what we're saying about not only climate change and, and, and destroying the atmosphere, but also, and we're seeing it very topical, today is March 30th, 2022 for future listeners. We're seeing the, how quickly on a dime it can, it can flip when, say, Russia invades Ukraine. And all of a sudden it's, well, we need their natural gases. Yeah. Are we, re- we going to really turn off the spigot because of Ukraine? Or are we going to take Ukraine as an acceptable loss? Hey, man, yeah. I think that's a greater evil than a potential radiation leak. And here you are, an unintended consequence of the decision to become environmentally, as people imagine it, virtuous. Now Europe is suddenly faced with the fact that they get their gas and oil from the Soviet Union, or from Russia, I should say. And all those decisions about let's get rid of our nuclear power and so forth are coming back to haunt them. Now they're going to have to deal with both problems at once. I should throw in something else here quickly, and that is we face a double problem with the, with the, with the next 50 years. There is the problem of global heating, as I now call it, because we're past global warming on the one hand. And maybe we can fix that without going to nuclear. But we're also faced with the fact that what used to be called the third world, Africa and a lot of Asia, is moving toward an improved level of life, moving toward higher income values and more education. And they want more energy. In fact, 
energy is sometimes equated with the, with life on some of the graphs that I've seen. You can you can graph the lifespan of countries, the average lifespan of countries, on a graph that that includes how much energy they produce, and until you get to a certain energy level, about three thousand kilowatts a year per person, uh, people don't live as long. It's just a kind of convenient measure of of economic development, actually because energy is necessary for economic development. And more and more people, countries have moved up toward the 70 years of life level, which is, which is about, after that, you can, you can use more energy, but it's kind of superfluous in terms of extending lifespan. So these people would like to live as well and as long as we do in advanced countries, technologically advanced countries. And the only way they're going to be able to do that is to produce more energy. So the question then becomes, what kind of energy is that going to be? They need nuclear power too, in, some, in, in various forms or something. So again, I come back to, it's going to be another 20 or 30 years before these sources of energy really begin to dominate the world market. But assuming, and, and the United States may always decide to go boutique and make our energy out of, out of windmills and so forth. We could probably do that if we want to spend the money with all the problems that come with intermittent energy sources. And even here, it's pretty clear that, that solar and wind are kind of stocking horses for natural gas because you have to have there's energy is not yet stored. It's produced and immediately used. So when the wind stops blowing and the sun goes down, you have to have some other source of supply. In this country, it's natural gas. Natural gas has been endorsing and supporting so-called renewable energy sources for a long time because it's really going to be their world, not these other sources. It's... <clears throat> Which is again hypocrisy of the worst kind in my mind. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's uh, natural gas is the is the angel investor to to solar or windmill. It's like they are not yet self. You know, like a large corporation can do that. They can create something new that is not immediately profitable because they've got this powerhouse. They've got their meat and potatoes that do push it forward. Like. Uh, my dad was in the poultry industry for like 30 years. And he talked about when the poultry uh, big corporations finally started to do the uh, no antibiotics ever movement, which started like 10 years ago. It was super expensive at first. It was yeah. super expensive, but they were able to do that because they had, you know, the lion's share of the hormone antibiotic steroid injected chicken that sure has some drawbacks, but it's also, you know, a person with next to no income can still go afford it at Walmart. And over 10 years, the demand has now grown out of like social approval for the no antibiotics thing. And now that's pushing the price down. But the, these ideas about solar and windmill and geothermal are great, but it's because there's that backbone of, hey, if all else fails, you know, we still got, we still got the workhorse. And that's, that's fine. Every day. Yes. It's there. It's it's stable, relatively stable. As long as you don't throw a match in it, it's it's transportable. We have the infrastructure. I can go fill up my car. Um, but 
with with nuclear there is that what you said that that line of energy i have i've had on really like in the first hundred episodes this is episode 765 so a while ago but i know and but i had on some nuclear fusion scientists one from the laser energetics laboratory at the university of rochester and then two from oxford who are actually working on ITER, the iter the international project about fusion and one kind of line they all had similar similar similarly worded but one guy worded it the best he was everyone should be able to live like an american windows open in the summer with the air conditioning on like and but he said that yeah but 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 the point is is we should do that we should strive for that and strive to do it with with clean energy and affordable energy and that is possible with not even nuclear fusion although that is the future and we need to as as unimaginable as it seems right now it's just as unimaginable as telling someone in the 1500s hey don't worry about those big trees it's all about metal they like what are you talking about it's yeah. the same thing but the existing technology the fission reactors it's already there we've had it from the, since the 50s it's I, I think it's nothing short of it's it's incompetence at best and it's it's suicidal negligence at worst if we are not going to utilize these for for climate as well as look what we're seeing right now we're, russia has leverage on the rest of the world because of their natural resources you, you can strip that from them uh, you wanted to talk about fusion and let's do because again uh, cesare marchetti the italian physicist i mentioned and if anyone's interested they should look up his work marchetti uh, projected the possibility of fusion beginning around the 20 beginning of the 22nd century so right now about 80 years away and that doesn't mean it won't be developing along the way but re, be reaching a, a major share of world market by perhaps 2100 20 no wait 20 22nd 2100 yeah 2100 exactly and that's because it's such a hard nut to crack. And the latest development, and it looks quite promising, has been the introduction on a very limited laboratory scale so far of superconducting magnets. Superconducting magnets are used in this great machine outside of Geneva, Switzerland, that I'm writing a book about, the Large Hadron Collider, which is a circular 17 miles in diameter colliding particle accelerator produces particles going in two directions and then smashes them together to get well among other things the famous higgs boson the so-called god particle that that was their most famous discovery but they have superconducting magnets and they were necessary in order to get the kind of magnetic field that they needed to accelerate these particles to the to the very close to the speed of light and the same thing evidently is going to be make it possible to have much more powerful squeezes holding in the the plasma the electrified gas that is the basis for thermonuclear fusion the problem has always been or to go back a moment Fusion works by squeezing together at very high temperature uh, the light element particles like hydrogen and helium. 
just the opposite end of the periodic table from fission, which used uranium, thorium, plutonium, the heavy elements, and breaks them apart and produces some energy. Here you're squeezing together the very lightest particles and fusing them together with a, with a release of energy. And that energy is what powers, among other things, hydrogen bombs. So we know how to do it using a hydrogen bomb, using a fission bomb to explode some hydrogen. But you can't really do that in a building. You have to do that somewhere deep underground or far away. So the problem, the solution that's been found as the most practical one so far, or at least the most workable one, is to build what's called a tokamak, which is basically a donut-shaped unit for holding a certain amount of rather diffuse hydrogen gas or helium gas. The question is, when that gas gets up to the heat of the center of the sun, 100 degree, million degrees, how do you hold it? You can't hold it with any solid material. So the technology that's been developing for many years is to hold it with magnetic field. And that's what this donut-shaped torus does. It's a donut of magnet, magnetic lines that hold this electrified and therefore magnetically workable gas in it while it's heated with various kinds of injectable beams and squeezed until it finally, one hopes, begins to produce more energy going out than is used to hold it together. They haven't really reached break-even, as that point is called, for more than a fraction of a second with any of these systems. But the time, but the, but the new magnets, which are 30, 40 times as powerful, piece for piece as the ones that have been used that are not superconducting, uh, look like they may help make that possible. And on a reasonable scale, because these machines can keep getting bigger and bigger. And there's that means they cost more and more, obviously. You'd like them to be about the size of a regular power plant. I mean, you'd like them to be the size of something you put in your basement, but that's that's not likely for a few thousand years, I'm sure. But you'd have to go back and look at the the old machine that you were talking about visiting and shoveling the coal into. Yeah, you'd have to right. go look at that, and uh, you know, imagine imagine bringing like a solar imagine bringing like a you know a phone charging solar panel back. They uh, you like this look at this, and they'd be like, "What is that?" Right. It does eventually. It will be as absurd to us as the as the fact that big thick trees are not a national security asset anymore and that's that's my hope is when i look at i think of those old those old military pictures of like uh have them on like pallets those huge computers and it's like five megabytes of memory and they're surrounded by armed guards and you're like what i have a hundred terabytes next to me it's yeah uh it may be, you know, anything that's physically possible. We humans, assuming we survive our own bad behavior long enough, will will no doubt get around to being able to do. But that's, again, way down the road. Yeah. But I think fusion is likely to come along. And at that point, who knows where fusion will go? Maybe it will go away. Maybe it will become, I mean, we have lots of different sources of energy around today. Uh, 
fixed up for various possible specific uses. And the same thing is likely to be true. After all, we still have fireplaces. We still burn wood fires, which goes back at least 100,000 years, right? So the same thing is probably going to be true for all these other energy sources. Until, I mean, there's no question that oil is a very important industrial material for making plastics and other things. In fact, wasting it on cars is, is indeed a waste. We could use all the oil that's still in the ground. Lord knows how much is left. Quite a lot, evidently, uh, for making things that we would like to make to live with and to give the rest of the world, as we were talking about, the kind of life that we all consider adequate and normal in the West. Yeah. Yeah. It's kind of what you say towards the end of the book, where we have to, you know, we have to be cognizant of the coming two generations in terms of not destroying the world for them. And also you get to give yourself a little bit of slack by going, and they'll have better technology. They'll be able to repurpose waste or at least uh, get rid of it or worse, just shield it better than we can right now because of that technology. So it's like we can't burn the world. But at the same time, we do have, I think we do have a little bit of wiggle room where it's in 2100, they'll be dealing with our smog um, in a reasonable way with technology that right now we don't have and that we can't conceive or simply on the bleeding edge. The, The flip side of that is we have to make it so that that technology is possible for them. We can't, we can't subsidize our waste to them without, we can't subsidize our waste to them because we're going to say they have better technology than us without laying the groundwork for that better technology. And if we can go back to that graph of energy, uh, quality of life goes up with energy, we then have to lay the groundwork for nuclear fusion. Now you have to do a, a Manhattan project, right? It's horribly inefficient, costs all the money, and you, but you get to spearhead it. Like the Apollo program sort of spearheading the, the space technology we have to do that now so that they'll have fusion in the future. And then whatever technologies sort of shed from that abundance of energy, because energy is the backbone of everything. Exactly. If that, make, if that makes sense. Well, and, but I would add there is, there are now startups that are looking at fusion as something that might be worth investing in exactly because of these recent developments that, uh, don't necessarily involve government funding. So the government really hasn't put a lot of money into fusion over the years because it's always seemed 20 years down the road. The money has gone to other technologies. But private business is looking at fusion now because it looks like it might be possible to build smaller, less, more efficient uh, and and whoever gets in on the ground floor presumably has some real advantages. It's definitely an energy source that's beginning to wake up. But again, I, I, I refer you to Marchetti's long-term studies. And he studied, he started with a team and worked up the energy transition process starting in 1850 for all the major sources of energy. So if you look at some of his graphs and some of his papers, you see wood on a slow decline across till till around 1930 when it 
pretty much ceased to be a major source of energy. It's coming back to a degree because Europe, in pursuit of some cockamamie idea of renewables, is buying pelletized wood from the United States South. We're shipping shiploads of pelletized wood over there so, so the Europeans can say they're green. <laughs> it's Yes, these are political factors. This is perception. This is people who believe that, that it should be possible to live with the sun and the wind and, and, and burning forests because that sort of recycles itself and therefore theoretically doesn't put excess CO2 into the atmosphere in the long run. We, it's it's a it's a circus right now, exactly because and I said this at the outset, this is the largest energy transition in human history. We are now dealing with the fact that energy affects the weather, the climate, and the entire planet, and not just in one place. It's not just a question of air pollution in Los Angeles anymore. It's a question of global heating throughout the entire world with all the dire consequences that that seems to be bringing about. For that reason, these issues have become much larger than they were before. That and then the other piece, as we said, the fact that there's a, a, a growing need for increased energy in the, what used to be called the third world. Could you uh, could you spell that guy's name? You said Mar- was it Marchetti Marzetti? C H E T T I M A M A C E S A R. So spell one more time. Sorry. Oh uh, no, his first name is Caesar. C E Z A R C E S A R. Sorry, Caesar. And Marchetti M A R C H E T T I. Got it. He works out of an institute in, uh, he did, he's retired now, he's in his 90s, works out of an institute in uh, Vienna. Beautiful. I just made a note of that. The whole string of wonderful and fascinating papers where he uses his studies of the past and the, the, the kind of seemingly regular cycles that turned up in those studies to look at the present and at the future. And I think I think what he shows is kind of terrifying because right now it's not clear if people are going to suppress these new sources of energy that have reached the threshold of moving up rapidly to fifty percent of world markets. I mean, nuclear power is is at about the ten percent level, and that's where he sees it take off and need only another fifty years to reach fifty percent of the world market. The same thing is true of natural gas, whereas solar, wind, these sources are still way, way down at the bottom. They need another 50 years just to get to the takeoff point, if they ever do. So he's really interesting to look at. I'm, I'm going to try to get him on here. Um, I wanted to, I was going to say about the idea of like burning like pelletized wood, like sure, we can live with just like the sun and the wind and the water and the wood, that's fine but we we can't live the life we live now we can't have leather chairs and and, and microphones we can but we would be living in a world where an awful lot of people would not be able to and then what would they do about looking across the ocean at us they'd probably come slaughter us (laughs) or they'd build their own energy that far superseded ours and then come slaughter us if, if indeed they can get there. But this, I mean, energy is a 
cure for human suffering. Yeah. If, when you say extend the lifespan, you're really saying reducing suffering. That's why I like to emphasize the current public health value. 68 million. Sources of energy. It saves lives. And indeed, uh, Jim Hansen, who is the former NASA scientist who, who works now in the field of dealing with promoting basically nuclear power and trying to get it development picked up again in this country, uh, published a paper, a, a thoroughly peer-reviewed paper with a colleague three or four years ago, pointing out that Nuclear has already saved somewhere between 750,000 and 6 million lives by cleaning up the air and is projected, he projects in this paper, to be capable of doing at least that again in the next 50 years. So it, again, is not just a question of whether or not global warming can be defeated by switching to these clean sources of energy carbon-free sources, I should say. It's also a question of current lives and saving those lives. And I, I know you got to run in a couple minutes. I, I, would, I almost think we might need to do a, a part two for this book because there's still a lot to talk about. But so we, I think we should do that. And I guess so I'll maybe I'll prep, I'll, I'll end this with some questions that we could tackle next time is if we're looking at, you know, a national security issue with energy, you would think that there would be a Manhattan project for a, a fusion reactor with the full force of the, you know, the DOD, which doesn't have to be profitable that can, you know, we can, as we know, we, we, we can throw the money at it. $2 billion in 1940. That wasn't, that wasn't nothing. We can do it if it does mean spearheading it. And also it almost seems like there needs just like Tesla is largely subsidized by the U and I think it's great. I'm, I'm not a critic of it. It almost seems like something like Exxon Mobil, if it, if if it could be in a capitalist manner attractive to them, if the U.S. government made something to where you start developing small nuclear reactors, start you know bring the cost down, because we need to we need to push it forward, and they can still make their money. Like and the idea that like a nuclear energy company couldn't still be you know raking in cash is silly. They absolutely could. You know, just like an electric car company, more valuable than all the other car companies combined. I think those are maybe two ideas that we could push forward. But I know you have a hard out in one minute, so we will wrap this one up. Um, I will text you. Let's definitely set up another episode for for this book. Sure. And then, yeah, absolutely. Because I, I, don't, I don't think we covered everything. I, I must tell the next time the story of Shakespeare and his pals. Steve. I know. A ceiling a building <laughs> yeah and and uh, and uh the other yeah the idea of uh going down and and with the you know like a like a torch going down and burning all the excess natural gas from the mines in the morning and then that one guy who accidentally they lit the whole thing and some guy got shot out like a cannonball over the treetops it's just insane but like if that was an acceptable thing then like i don't think we really have an excuse to not push forward nuclear energy like yeah <laughs> yeah there are some there're going to be some horrific things in the process but overall it's probably for the better and you have to run and i have to let you go good to talk so, you uh, you as well mr Rhodes. i'll send you the episode when it's up energy on audible put it in the description as always your website in the description all that good stuff and we will set up another episode for this book and all the other good stuff. But I will let you go because if not, I will keep you hostage. So, Mr. Rhodes, thank you so much, sir. Take care.